Lord, we need your help this morning to guide us in your word. We need your Holy Spirit to to, to minister to our hearts. So Lord, we ask that you would um, allow us to be teachable this morning, that the orientation of our heart would be to be submissive to you through the preaching of your word, and that whatever it is that you reveal, whatever it is that you show, that we would respond rightly and humbly before you, whether that is repentance, whether that is uh, clarity, whether that is um, a confirmation of things that we need to do. And Lord, I ask that I, as your messenger, would simply be your mouthpiece, that you would uh, allow my words to be a reflection of your heart and your desire for your people today. Uh, Would you be glorified in all that is said and done, we ask in your precious holy name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. I'm sure that in the course of your Christian life that you have encountered those who are opposed to Christianity, uh, seeking to salve their consciences by asking questions that are an attempt to debunk your faith or to undermine the concept of God or even the gospel. And here are a few of the more common statements that you might run into. Uh, You can certainly go online and find all sorts of questions that are posed to trick Christians, but here's a few to think about. If God is all-powerful, can he make a rock so heavy that he can't lift it? How many angels can dance on the end of a needle? If God told you to sacrifice your child, would you do it? And what kind of God would do such a thing? Do you believe that hell is a justifiable punishment for a simple lack of belief? Where is this Jesus that you're putting your hope in? Didn't he say he was coming soon? It has been over 2,000 years. How can you say God loves and cares about everyone if some people suffer while others prosper? Now, I'm sure you've probably heard those or maybe read those or encountered things like that. Um, And these are just a few, as I mentioned, of questions that people may ask or, or, or that skeptics may come up with in an attempt to knock you off of your horse and cause you to fall into the ditch with the idea of you abandoning your Christian faith. There are actually a lot more, if you want to say, blogs and Facebook pages that are set up now to give people these tools to challenge Christianity in particular. What are you going to do when that comes to you? In our text today, we don't have atheistic skeptics, but we have religious Jews who come to Jesus and they pose a tricky question. It's a question about the subject of divorce. And in all honesty, my flesh does not want to talk about the content of this text. But it is the content of the text that is the basis of the tricky question. It's a difficult text on many levels, seeking to glean some some insight on how to confront a tricky question is a difficult thing, but the subject matter of divorce and remarriage is always dangerous territory. Not because I'm really afraid to speak about the issues at hand, but because I know that so many of God's children, and likely that being true, many of you have been and are directly affected by the issues relating to divorce and remarriage. But God has a reason for us dealing with this text today. And so let me give you three ways or three reasons that I think will help us frame how we are going to approach this passage. First and foremost, we are dealing with this text because we're committed to what is known as expositional preaching, which is committed to working through the books of the Bible, and dealing with the text of God's word as it comes. In other words, we believe that the Holy Spirit knows what is best 
and he knows when it is best, far better than we can put things together. We're committed to that. Secondly, out of the first, we're dealing with this text because it is the next passage in Mark's gospel. I wasn't pining away in Ukraine saying, <laughs> I know what I'm going to speak on when I get back to Gateway. All right? It's not that at all. The reason we're here is because it's the next text. And if I'm going to be a faithful pastor and shepherd to the flock, we have to deal with the content of this text. Third, as I've mentioned, the subject of divorce and remarriage has brought much pain to people. Talking about it will, for many, be bringing up hurtful memories. Memories that most want to forget. And, and so I want to be careful and I want to be sensitive today as we talk through some of these issues to recognize that this is an area of concern for many, if not most of us, who are affected in some way, shape, or form, whether it's us, whether it's family, whether it's friends who have gone through the, um, the, the process of divorce and potentially even um, a remarriage. So I have a job to do because God has placed on my shoulders and my responsibility to be a faithful preacher of the word of God. And so my job is to glorify him by feeding the flock the word of God. And so I, I, I would ask that as we work through this, that you're praying not just for me, but for, for God to have his way with us and that our hearts, wherever we're coming at on this topic, will be encouraged and helped because the end game, when we get to the end of our time together, the resolve is always going to be Jesus Christ and his gospel. And wherever you are on the scale here, there is a road to Christ. There's a road that flows out of the gospel where you can find joy, you can find forgiveness, you can find reconciliation. And that's the tone by which we want to press forward here. So let's just think a little bit about the structure of this passage. I want to draw your attention to the fact of how this passage unfolds. There's three groups of people that are identified in relationship to Christ. First of all, there's the crowds. And that's kind of like the general uh, section here, verse 1. Then there are the Pharisees, verses 2 through 9. And then there are the disciples in verses 10 through 12. And clearly, there is a progression going on here in this text. Jesus is teaching the crowds in Judea. He's being tested by the Pharisees, and then he is training the disciples based on what they have just heard in Jesus' encounter with the Pharisees. And so here is the proposition for this morning. Here is where this text is taking us. And you might say, well, I thought this text was about divorce. And it is, because the topic of the tricky question is divorce, but there is something else going on here before we even get to that topic, okay? And that's why this proposition is stated the way it is. Tricky questions in the course of the Christian life demand that the disciple of Christ maintains a balanced and reasoned response that stays on the line of Scripture. Let me say it again, tricky questions in the course of the Christian life demand that the disciple of Christ maintains a balanced and reasoned response that stays on the line of Scripture. What we see in this encounter is the faithfulness of Jesus in maintaining the line of Scripture in, or in dealing with the Pharisee's question. Now, let me just remind you, when I say the line of Scripture, I'm simply meaning to communicate that, Christ, that, that Scripture has this consistent teaching. You may have an evolution of that teaching, Old Testament, now New Testament, but you take it all together and you see where God is going with his line of teaching. And we want to make sure we're staying on what scripture says. All right? So you go to different parts of scripture on the subject of divorce and remarriage. There are going to be some passages that say some different things sometimes seemingly contrary things, but we want to make sure that we are staying on the line of what Scripture is actually teaching because 
One of the principles of interpretation is you compare scripture with scripture and you see the differences and you realize that there is a, there's a way that they work together. And that's what we want to see. That is ultimately what Jesus does. So to say more than scripture says tends towards legalism. Okay? To say less than what scripture says tends toward antinomianism or might want to say kind of theological or practical liberalism. In other words, I don't have to be bound by Scripture. I know it says this, but I'm going to say less than it. I'm freer to do what I want to do. Both of them are distortions of Scripture. And so our job is always to pursue this line of Scripture rather than what we think or what we feel or even what one passage might say to us. So when we come to Scripture with our own thoughts, We deceive ourselves into thinking that we have the right to stand over Scripture, and we don't. We always stand under Scripture. It is our authority. If we come to Scripture with our own feelings, we will be guilty of sentimental um, approaches and sentimental interpretations of Scripture that then will fall short, likely, of what Scripture is actually teaching. And if we only look at one text of Scripture without looking at the broader uh, scope of Scripture, we will end up coming up with isolated interpretations or interpretations that are incomplete. So I say all that just to kind of, just to lay a foundation for what we're going to be doing with this text. So let's jump right in here uh, to what I'm calling the context of tricky questions, the context of tricky questions. Here Jesus is teaching among the crowds. Verse one, and he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond Jordan and crowds gathered to him. And again, he, as was his custom, he taught them. Now, as we come to this passage, Mark wants us to know what is happening with Jesus and where ministry now is taking him, the fact that he is penetrating now out of Galilee and into the region of Judea beyond Jordan. So he's, he's entering into territory where he hasn't been. He's encountering new people, new crowds, but he's also encountering now a more aggravated Pharisee and religious leadership. They are seeking to pursue him. They're seeking to undermine him. In other words, the, the, the opposition is greater in this particular context. And so as he enters this new region, he does what he has always been doing, and that is his, he, he begins to preach. He begins to teach. This is his primary focus and purpose in ministry. Let's remind ourselves by looking back at a couple of verses in Mark's gospel. Certainly Jesus did heal people, he did cast out demons, he did mighty, wonderful works that are recorded for us, but his primary purpose and his primary focus was the preaching of the gospel of the kingdom. Look at Mark chapter one and verses 14 and 15. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. This was the message that he was preaching. Everything else he was doing was basically table setting for the message of the gospel, of the kingdom. We see that again in chapter one and verse 38. And he said to them, let us go into into the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. Please hear this. Jesus did not have as his main focus going into villages and towns, healing people of their diseases, casting out demons, or or fixing or raising people from the dead. That wasn't his primary focus. He did those things. His primary focus was the preaching of the gospel of the kingdom. So, having said all that, Jesus now is doing what he normally did in ministry. If we go back to chapter 10, it says, and again, as was his custom, he taught them. And friends, this is just a reminder that these tricky questions come in the context of normal 
ministry life. When I say normal ministry life, I'm just saying the ministry of raising a family, the ministry of, of being husband and wife, the ministry of going to work and, and living out your, your Christian life in the context of work or even serving the Lord through the local church in some ways. These are the places, these are the, the arenas where these tricky questions come. And we shouldn't be surprised. I mean, out of nowhere, someone might approach you and, 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 you know, and confront you with a tricky question, trying to catch you out and try to, to show how foolish you are to be a follower of Christ. Saying things like, how can you believe in a God that can't, you can't see? Or how can a loving God allow so much tragedy to take place around the world? Or if, if God is all-powerful, why doesn't he reach down and snatch up the Hitlers and the Stalins and the haters of this world? Or to believe in the God of the Bible is simply insanity. I mean, this is the kind of stuff, you're like, whoa, where did this come from? And often they succeed in either silencing us or making us feel inadequate and inept with the truth of the gospel that we hold dear. Let me ask you some questions here. And and I just simply want you to consider what I'm saying here and the implications of it. If an unbeliever were to ask you, do you read the Bible, what would you say? You probably would say, yes, I read the Bible. But let me follow that question up with another question. Have you read the Bible from cover to cover? Is that your practice? Is that what you do? And as you read the Bible again through, are you reading it with an understanding or seeking to understanding a greater awareness of who God is and how he functions in this world? See, how can we defend the teachings of Christ if we're not willing to even study them and know what they say? Sometimes we read the Bible more for, for inspiration than for application. I mean, the whole, the whole Jesus calling book is all about that. It's just, I'm going to read the Bible and just want God to speak to me now having read it and, and kind of get this feeling kind of, it, it, I want to be inspired. Now, certainly when you read the Bible, it inspires. But if you're going for the, that, that, that fix, you're going for the wrong reason. That's not feeding. That's a That's a fix. We want to read the Bible for application. This is what it says. This is who Christ is. Therefore, this is how he wants me to to live my life or to approach him or to to, to seek to interact with others. So our our whole approach to our Christian walk um, may need to adjust, may need to change. And the importance of the word of God being central and something that you know about as a Christian, especially if you've been a Christian for a while, should be part of your goal, should be part of your agenda so that you can answer a man who has a question. So one of the questions we should be asking ourselves is this, and I have three here. What is the the, the text teaching me about tricky questions? All right, what, what can I learn from this encounter that will help me consider my thoughts and my response when confronted with a trick question? And how does Jesus model a right response? I'm just saying there are questions that come out of this. And, you know, you might go to work this week and, and someone might, sitting over lunch, just ask you a question. Now, the, the, the issue there is, are they asking you because they really want to know or are they asking because they're trying to, they're trying to trick you? They're trying to debunk you. All right? and, and those are two different things that we'll have to distinguish here in just a minute. Then now let's look to what I'm calling the nature of trick questions, the nature of trick questions. I spent a good bit of time here um, this morning. Mark gives us the reason why the Pharisees showed up. Um, they came to Jesus. What does it say? Pharisees came up in order to what? Test him. So Mark is letting you know, hey, listen, what I'm about to tell you, this is happening because the Pharisees have a goal in mind. They're coming to test him. They weren't coming to learn from Jesus or to grow in their understanding of his word or to get clarification on a particular topic. No, they were coming to test him. They were coming to entrap him with this question. And what is the question that they are cleverly and smugly asking Jesus to answer? It's found in verse 2. And Pharisees came up and in order to test him asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? 
Now, if you look at verse 4, where the Pharisees quote the words of Moses on the subject by saying, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away, it's clear that they had an awareness of what the Scriptures actually taught. I'm going to take the Scriptures, talking about the Old Testament Scriptures, right? So this question is designed to trip Jesus up. Now, how is this an entrapment question? Right, and that's something we want to consider um, as we kind of move through this text. There are two possible and likely reasons why this question was posed to Jesus. There are two ditches, maybe, that they wanted Jesus to potentially fall into by virtue of his answer. And that's the thing about tricky questions, is if you answer one way, you're stuck. If you answer another way, you know, you're stuck again. And, and that's the point. They want to catch you out. And that's exactly what's going on here, right? First of all, there's a political issue uh, relating to the subject of divorce. Why? Because there was this guy by the name of Herod. And Herod had manipulated his way to getting this person that he loved, Herodias, to divorce a husband and now to marry him. So if Jesus responds by saying, you know what, you can divorce for any cause, then he is aligning himself with Herod. If he says, no, there is no divorce, then he is going against Herod. So now there's a political problem. And trust me, the Pharisees wanting to get rid of Jesus would, would use it to say, you know what, you are going against the king. All right? So there's a political issue. The greater one, though, is the religious issue relating to the subject of divorce. And the Pharisees knew exactly what they were doing because in the Pharisees, among the Pharisees, there were two schools of thought, two extremes. One was liberal, one was conservative. Oh, how things have not changed. Even within the umbrella of the body of Christ, there are liberals and there are conservatives. There are those that believe the word of God to be true as we have testified, as we hold to, that it is our authority, that it is sufficient. And then there are those who are liberal who would say, ah, the Bible is just, it can become God's word or you know, Jesus Christ didn't have to die on the cross for our sins. All this is under the umbrella of what the world sees as Christianity. And as such, there was this great controversy going on, in particular, about how to interpret Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 through 4, in particular, verse 1. So turn, if you would, please, to Deuteronomy chapter 24. And here we find this... Uh, this passage dealing with the subject of divorce. Here's what it says. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds or no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house and she departs out of his house and... If she goes and becomes another man's wife and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies who took her to be his wife, then her former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination to the Lord." And you're saying, I don't like reading Old Testament passages like this. All right? And I understand that there's a logic to it. This is, this is, this is detailed stuff. Now, it is in this passage that God sets forth certain rules relating to the matter of divorce and remarriage. But a careful reading of this text reveals that divorce is not being condemned or condoned as such. It is presented in a if-then formula. If these things happen, then this is what follows. So the text isn't actually condoning the if statement. It's simply speaking to the reality that these if things actually do happen, and if they do, then this is what happens. So the whole purpose of this passage is to say that the man who divorces his wife cannot remarry that same wife again. And it's also understood that the reason that this law was given was to protect the woman from an abusive and compulsive man. 
the woman without a certificate of divorce in the Jewish culture would be subject to exploitation and possibly recrimination. For her to have a certificate of divorce was liberating. In other words, she wasn't kind of like brushed aside. She now had legitimate grounds for that divorce. So there, the, the woman is in mind here, not just the man. Her care and her consideration is part of the purpose of these statements. So the reality is that when the Pharisees go back to this passage, uh, how they're actually using it is really misinterpreting the text. They're adding some nuances uh, to try and catch Jesus. But the controversy primarily focuses on what is the meaning in verse 1 of the word in our text that is translated indecency. What is this indecency in her? Now, I realize we're walking through some, some very tight logic and seeing some things that, that probably you're like, oh, man, this is hard to follow. But just understand these two groups of Pharisees had two very different polar opinions, and they came from two different rabbis who taught two different things. And a certain section of the Pharisees followed one rabbi, and a certain section followed the other. The first uh, rabbi would be the school of Hillel. They were the religious liberals. They believed that divorce was acceptable for any cause. In other words, they interpreted this word indecency in a very loose manner. For example, if the husband simply dislikes his wife or gets tired of her, he can divorce her. If she does something that displeases him, she cooks his scrambled eggs too long, no. We understand that is a serious problem, okay? But it is not grounds for divorce, okay? They, they have to be just moist enough. All right, uh, all right. let's go, let's move on. All right, if, if she burns the lasagna, if she quarrels with him, he can send her away, meaning he can divorce her. Even if he prefers someone else to her, divorce was allowed. You might even say this is the Old Testament version of California's no-fault divorce position. Then you have the school of Shammai. It's actually spelled wrong up there. They are the religious conservatives. They believe that the only acceptable reason for divorce was sexual infidelity. They understood that indecency here meant marital impropriety short of adultery. And I say short of adultery because the Old Testament law says if someone commits adultery, what happens to them? They are stoned. They're executed. So this is something outside of that or short of that in that particular context. So you can see what the Pharisees are trying to do here with Jesus. They want him to take side in this debate. Will he side with the liberals or will he side with the conservatives? The reality is, if he's staying on the line of scripture, he's going to be much closer to the conservatives here. But there's so much theological baggage with them, he's not, he's not going to align himself with them. But it's clear to see here, the Pharisees, they're not interested in the truth. They're not really interested in godliness. They're not interested in marriage as such here with this question. This is simply a game of let's trick Jesus so we can condemn him. That's the purpose behind the question. So now notice how Jesus responds to their tricky question. He answered them. What did Moses command you? So what's Jesus doing here? He's taking them back to Scripture. He's saying, what does the word of God say? And so he's making this point. And notice how they respond. They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. The reality is God didn't you know, give instructions and commands for marriage and then say, now here's a command for divorce. This came, about, came, uh, came as a result, as we read uh, a little later, because of the hardness of their heart, he, this was an allowance more than it was a command. It was a command in the sense that it was, it was given by God, but it was, it was given because it was a, an allowance. Now, Jesus clarifies the issue by taking them to two real issues. Here are, the, here are the two real issues. Real issue number one, 
um, Jesus reveals their heart problem, verse 5. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. So the certificate of divorce wasn't God's plan. It was God's concession for the hardness of Israel. Secondly, he takes them back to God's creative design. And he says, let me tell you again what God's ideal is. God's ideal is one man, one woman for life. So he goes back to the beginning, verse 6, is but from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. And so even under this, we need to, to say when Jesus quotes from Genesis chapter 2, verses 23 and 24, which is what he's doing there, he's emphasizing two things. Number one, the intimacy of marriage. It is a one flesh relationship. This idea of, of one flesh is that this is a union and it's unique and it's a complete relationship um, that, that, that results in, in unity with one another. The man and the woman who've come together because they've left father and mother and they're holding fast to each other. So there's this, there's this releasing and there's the sticking. They're coming together. They're joining together. They are now one flesh. This expression, one flesh, describes what they are before God. This is what they are, as well as we would say, this is what they need to pursue. It's kind of like the, the, the whole concept of holiness in the Bible. You, you come to faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus declares you holy. Not because of your own holiness, but because of Christ's holiness, right? But then he says, now, be holy, because you are holy, right? So in marriages, we are already one flesh, but we're called to pursue being and living up to that one flesh relationship. So this idea of one flesh is not simply an expression of sexuality. It refers to the kind of unity that takes place in a marriage union, united emotionally, united intellectually, spiritually, physically. Um, you could even say academically. So there's this intimacy that takes place in marriage that is unique. It is a one flesh relationship. Secondly, there's this idea of permanence in marriage. Okay? What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. This is God who is joining them together. God never intended for there to be a separation. I, I like to, to think of marriage using the image of Plato. And you probably heard me do this if you've ever been to one of my weddings. But you take two lumps of Play-Doh, you take a green, uh, blue lump and a, and a, and a red lump, and they're, they're, they're brought together, and, and life just kind of needs them together, right? And it becomes one, and more things happen in life, and you need it together. And before long, as you, if you were, you were to kind of like tear apart this, this ball that you had, it might, be, it might have a little bit of marbling going on, but the color begins to change. It's no longer blue, it's no longer red. Now what color is it, all you scientists out there? It's becoming more and more purple because that is what God has now called you to, man, woman, together, right? One flesh. Now, you cannot then somehow tear that apart into two lumps and say, everything's going to be fine. If you attempt to, it's going to be destructive for both. See, God's intended purpose is that marriage is between a man and a woman for life. That is why he says, what therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. So as such, in God's thinking, there was no place for divorce ever. God's ideal was and continues to be a monogamous, intimate, and enduring marriage. So how can we summarize how Jesus dealt with a tricky question. Now, now we're, gonna, we're gonna get back to this, this whole divorce conversation just in a minute, but I want you to see where Jesus is going. He's answering these Pharisees with their question, and he's doing it in a way that I think is helpful for us. So here's some things to think about when people come to you with tricky questions. 
Question or answer number one, seek to understand the motive of their heart. Are they coming because they're simply trying to trip you up? Or are they coming because they really have a question and it's genuine? And maybe a, a question back is, you know, you ask me a question, do you really want to know the answer to that question? You know, they come and it's like, well, I don't got this great question, blah, blah, blah. And your response can be, do you really want me to answer you how many angels can dance on the end of a pin? I mean, it, first of all, it's, just, it's, sorry to use this word, but it's a stupid question. It really is. And the purpose of the question is to be logically um, stupid so that you can't answer. That it really is an inappropriate question. If you really want me to answer questions about the Bible, let's think about questions that might be more real to life and more real to what it means to walk and follow the Lord. But you have to, have to kind of understand the motive of their heart. Some people come with genuine questions. Some people come because they're trying to salve their own consciences and trip you up. Now, you don't have to understand the question. <laughs> sometimes you don't. Um, and sometimes you don't know how to answer them exactly. Um, but um, it's also very likely you've got to think about why they're asking the question. Um, it's likely that the argument that they're making is the result of Christians behaving badly, Christians being really sloppy in how they're handling the word of God, or people under the umbrella of Christianity who are really mystical in their religiousness. For example, when someone takes a picture of a fried egg or pancakes or a grilled cheese sandwich that they have made that somehow turns out to resemble a woman holding a baby and are now claiming that the Virgin Mary has visited them, we say, ah, I think there's a problem here. That is not what Scripture teaches. In fact, Scripture would say things against that kind of foolishness. So there's a sense in which we are agreeing with them that there's a lot of silliness out there. There's a lot of foolishness out there that is under the name of Christianity, okay? Let's just acknowledge that. And we want to make sure we're doing all we can to distance ourselves from that kind of thinking and, and from things that Scripture says is not healthy and not right. So if their challenge is because of bad examples under that umbrella, it's perfectly fine to say, you know you're right about what these people say or do, um, their views are strange to me, too. They really don't reflect what it means to be an evangelical Christian. However, much of the arguments that um, the supposedly wise of this world, and I know Albert talked about last, last week, it was good, um, they bring to the table, uh, really, it's, it's, it's cleverness, it's a wrangling with words. Um, some people are just really, really gifted at debate. Anyone here ever involved in a debate team? Right? Now, if you, if you don't know anything about debate, you're given a topic and you don't know whether you're going to be for the topic or you're going to be against the topic, right? I'm not talking about having arguments at home with your parents. I'm talking about in school, that kind of thing, a formal debate, right? And so what happens is people learn how to argue something they don't actually believe in. And there are people that are gifted at making arguments that aren't even true, that they don't even believe in for the sake of winning the arguments. And sometimes people are just going to run circles around you who are skilled in debate. So don't be intimidated. You know, if, if they want to feel you know, their, their jolliness because they've got you, um, that's, that's their thing. You don't have to be sucked into this, but that's what they want you to do. Let me remind you of what, what Albert mentioned last week, 1 Corinthians 1, 18 through 20. Just listen, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Now, of course, the, the, the wise person would listen to that and say, oh, that's just foolishness, right? That's just a bunk. You're just, you're just crazy to believe that stuff. And, and God is saying in his word, this is what those people are like. And the, the gospel and the cross just, just undermines their whole process and their whole thinking. So get an awareness of 
the motives of their heart. Secondly, as we were interacting with Jesus and thinking about how he dealt with them, um, take them to Scripture. Uh, it's easy to get sidetracked by tricky questions and want to start reasoning with them on an intellectual level. And if you start to do that, especially with people who are gifted at this, you will be fodder in their hands. So just be careful unless you have skills in that department. Uh, not because you're wrong and not because you, you, you don't have the right answer, but because, remember, this is for them just a, a, a skillful thing that they want to accomplish. So remember, the only authority that you and I have is not our thinking, it's not our intellect. It is the Word of God. And so this is why I was saying earlier, the more of the Word of God that you're learning, the more of how God is, has made up His Word and the arguments that are in the Word, the more you're going to be able to learn about how to respond to certain things. In my experience, as I've encountered people who want to challenge Christianity, um, there are a number of things that I have found to be true. Number one, they really don't have an understanding of what the Scriptures actually teach. They usually argue from a basis of what they think the Scriptures teach, but not from what the Scriptures actually teach. Secondly, very few have read the Scriptures from cover to cover. They've picked and choose a few things here, and they claim to know what the Scriptures say, right? I mean, it's like you arguing with someone who is Muslim, and you haven't read the Quran. You know, have fun with that, Right? it's really hard to do that. All you're going to be able to do is share God's word, share the scripture. So be careful. And then thirdly, very few have a biblical framework to understand how the scriptures are to be approached. They, they, they have this idea that, you know, it's all the same thing. You can pick from here, you can pick from here, and people can come up with conclusions, right? The, the old statement, um, you know, um, Jesus, uh, Judas went and hung himself, you know, another passage, go thou and do likewise. You take two different passages, you bring them together. See, this is what it is. This is what Christians do all the time. And the reality is lots of Christians do that kind of stuff. But you want to be mindful that they really don't understand how do you approach the Word of God? How has God called us to do that? So some will ask, um, so do you interpret the Bible literally? And of course, you have to respond what? Yes, I do, because that is the honest truth. And then for them, it's like, ah, oh, I got them now, Pandora's box. If you say you interpret the Bible literally, um, only a fool would actually do that. But what they fail to understand is that when anyone reads a poem that is full of metaphors and similes, they are reading that poem literally, understanding that the figures of speech in that poem are meant to be what? Figures of speech. That is how we read poetry literally. As the genre is supposed to be read, so we want to approach that genre in that right way. So if it's a narrative or a story, we read it like a story, not seeking to allegorize and make some spiritual implications that aren't there in the text. We're not looking for some hidden meaning. We're just looking for the storyline and what God is saying through the story. If it's a letter or an epistle, we read it, understanding that it was written by an author. You know, it could be Paul, it could be Peter, and he's writing to a particular group in a particular context, and he has something to say to them. And we read it as a letter. Again, no hidden meaning going on at all. We understand the genre, and the genre then is the means by which we're able to approach Scripture. But most people that you're going to be interacting with they're totally clueless to how we approach the Word of God and how anyone should approach the Word of God and how it fits together. And the third thing then will be this, simply building on that, uh, you know, expose their mishandling of Scripture. Now, not in a caustic, obnoxious way, but even the things that I have shared will help people hopefully understand, you know what, you're reading the Word of God wrong. You're coming up with arguments that really are not reality and... Um, so maybe help you to, to see that. Um, now, it's perfectly fine if someone asks you a question that you just don't know the answer to, and those are common because they like to pull things like that out. It's perfectly fine to say, you know, that's a good question. Let me think about it, and we can talk further. And if they're really wanting to know, then you go and you study, and you try your best to come back and say, you know, this is what I think the answer is or how this should be approached. If they're not interested, if they're like, well, see, I got you now. It's like, no, you didn't get me. You know, you, you, giving me the opportunity to respond to something you've been thinking about for a long time is really disingenuous, right? And um, so I, it's okay just to kind of backtrack and say, you know, I'm going to go and I'm going to study that. Now, listen, your confidence in your skillful intellect is not the issue. Your confidence is always in Christ and his sufficient word. 
And here's the fourth thing. This is an opportunity then for you and I to grow. <laughs> so he's like, ah, oh, here's a tricky question. All right, well, that's going to force me now to go to the Word of God and to open it up and to find out what it says on this topic or what's happening in this text. Why does there seem to be a contradiction? Why are there some problems that these people are coming up with? Now, the point here is this. As the Pharisees come to Jesus, they come with a tricky question. The purpose is to derail Jesus. So in the context in which we live, there are going to be people that you and I encounter or there's going to be things that we read or things that are said on TV and you're going to be like, oh, they just don't understand. They just don't get it because they don't have these frameworks. They don't know how to approach the word of God. And this is then an opportunity for you to say, well, look, I'm going to dig a little bit more and find out about this particular topic. And that's really how this text unfolds. Because we, we find Jesus teaching the crowds. We find Jesus interacting with the Pharisees. But now what happens? The disciples who've been listening the whole time, what are they doing? Uh, Jesus, they bring up a good point. Could we talk about this? And what does Jesus do? Well, notice it says in verse 10, and in the house the disciples asked him again about this matter, and he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her, and if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Now, the disciples are wanting Jesus to teach them. And so Jesus then is training his disciples based on what has just happened. This is ministry on the way. Life is full of this kind of stuff. But Jesus now is wanting to um, deal with the subject and focus in a little bit on the, the topic of divorce and, and remarriage. So the content of the tricky question is now an opportunity for Jesus to teach and train his disciples. Now, what is the teaching on divorce in the Bible? Now, we only have a few minutes left. And I'm going to highlight just the basic teaching of the Word of God on the subject of divorce. We have some, some, some stuff that we've already worked through to kind of glean from, but there's going to be some other things that will, that will be helpful here. We must go back to the beginning, and we must recognize that when Jesus quotes uh, Genesis 2.24, he is purposeful to say that what God has joined together, let no man separate. And then also in Malachi, he references this. But I think the first thing we need to recognize is this, that God hates divorce. He hates divorce. This is not his intention. Now, some have said that divorce is even more traumatic than losing a spouse or a parent. John Piper puts it this way, very poetically but helpfully. He says, death is usually clean pain. Divorce is usually dirty pain. And you, you get his point. Death of a parent, death of a loved one, there's, there's, there's this clean break. We didn't know it was going to happen. Um, we understand that God takes people home, but divorce is just like, it's just left with a mess. Um, People don't just walk away from a divorce happily ever after into the sunset. That is not what happens. Marriages are wrecked, families are torn apart, children are troubled, confused, hurting and facing lifelong struggle, bouncing back and forth from parent to parent at Christmas and Thanksgiving and on and on. Now, you might have one party in a divorce that believes that Ah, now I'm free and I'm happy and I can do the things that I want to do. And yet that person is probably leaving another person behind who's not feeling that way, who's in fact broken and is experiencing pain and suffering and is probably seeing life more realistically than the other person is. None of that is what God intended. God's plan from the beginning was one man one woman for life. Now add to that the fact that the marriage union is instituted by God to be a picture of Christ's relationship with the church. And when divorce happens, especially among believers, it just undoes that picture of Christ and his relationship with the church. God hates 
divorce. And I, I, I want to say that gently. I'm not going to scream it. I'm not going to shout it. It's a reality. It isn't his intention. It wasn't his intention. He hates all that happens with it. But if we're going to be true to the line of Scripture, we can't stop there. Secondly, God allows divorce under two conditions. Condition number one, we find in Matthew's parallel account to what Mark says, Matthew actually gives us a few more details than Mark. There are some questions as to why. It could be the audience. It could be the fact that Mark is writing to a Roman context and the Romans did not allow for uh, the kind of um, um, response that would be according to the Old Testament law. You couldn't stone someone. Uh, you were under Roman law at that particular point in time. And there may be uh, some other issues. But the fact that, that Matthew has this account, parallel account, he adds something here. So this is Matthew chapter 19, verses 8 through 9. I would just invite you to turn there and to follow along and to see how he fills out what we've seen here in Mark's gospel. Matthew chapter 19, verses 8 and 9. He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. So this statement, except for, uh, except for um, sexual immorality, is known as the exception clause. And it's the Greek word porneia from which we get the word pornography. And it's a word that describes any sexual activity that is outside the bonds of marriage. So it includes things like adultery, homosexuality, or any sexual behavior reserved for the marriage bed that is taking place outside the bonds of marriage. So for example, a husband uh, commits adultery and his wife finds out about it, she now has grounds for divorce if she so chooses that. If the husband repents and in tears begs for forgiveness, the question here is this, is his wife obligated to remain in the marriage? That's a lot of people in the church that would say, yes, she's obligated to remain in the marriage. However, He's been repentant, and his repentance may be true. He is asking for forgiveness, but he's asking for forgiveness as a brother in Christ, not as a husband as it relates to the marriage. In other words, I want you to think through this. We have a responsibility to make sure that we're staying on the line of Scripture. There can be a lack of trust that she just may not be able to resolve. And if God gives her the right to then say, I cannot continue in this marriage. Even after there's been counsel, even after there's been encouragement to work it out, to stick it out, and that is what we would do initially. But there is the potential. She was like, you know, I just, I just can't do it. There is an allowance here that says there is freedom now to pursue a divorce biblically. Now hear this. Um, we don't have the right to restrict or to remove a right that God has given her. We must stay on the line of Scripture. Now, that might shock you. Pastor Rod, what are you talking about? I'm trying to give you the line of Scripture, okay? God still hates divorce, but there is an allowance there, and it is this idea of porneia. Secondly, 1 Corinthians 7 you may want to turn there, 1 Corinthians 7, in particular, verse 15. The Apostle Paul talks about the subject of marriage, whether to be married or not to be married. He talks about the times. He talks about the difficulty of the times. And he actually makes an argument to say, you know, it would be better to stay single. But if you're burning, get married. And eventually he talks about um, those who are married to unbelievers. Now, just think about the context. Here's the church. People are getting saved. Someone gets saved, and they're married, and they're married now to someone who's an unbeliever. The question is, should that person stay married to this unbeliever? And his argument is this. Listen, if they are willing to continue in the marriage with you, and you're a believer, stay, okay? You don't have any grounds to, to, to leave in this relationship. 
But verse 15, he answers another question. But if the unbelieving partner separates, in other words, leaves or wants to divorce, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. In other words, no, they're no longer bound by this marriage covenant. God has called you to peace. And so the second, uh, I would say, condition would be the desertion of an unbeliever. Right? And under those circumstances, Scripture is saying here that you're no longer enslaved. You're actually freed from the bonds of marriage. And, and whatever is freed then is, is, is freed then to remarry under these circumstances. Okay? Now, these are the two conditions that Scripture gives for pursuing a divorce. But there's something else that needs to be brought up and understood. And friends, this is, this is a, a, a passion for me. This is something that I'm grieved over, but we need to need to need to talk about it. Right? And it's number three. God expects the elders of a church to shepherd a flock. You say, well, what are you talking about? In my opinion, one of the scandals of the modern-day church is its overwhelming unwillingness to walk the biblical path with those who are struggling in their marriages and pursuing a divorce. There's almost like this unwritten policy in church leadership that says leadership will not get involved in these matters. It gets too messy. It's too easy for the church to get caught in the middle and to have its reputation tarnished. The church is often accused of siding with one partner or the other. So in many cases, pastors, elders, deacons, leadership, however the church is is structured as far as its leadership. They just stay out of the way and they will let people do what they're going to do. They might recommend maybe meeting with a couple in the church that deals with these things or maybe they'll send them to, to counseling outside the church but they will not enter in and to walk alongside and bring shepherding counsel to that couple. Friends, that is scandalous. And, and there are people in the church today, there are people probably in our church today who have been the victims of churches that are not willing to step up and stand behind people who are going through these issues and, and looking at divorce in the face. This is our responsibility as leadership, and it really is the church's responsibility to care for the flock. They really just don't want to get involved. They're, They've been called to reach people with the gospel. They've been called to oversee ministries and lead worship and, and provide inspirational sermons, but not to walk with a couple that is contemplating divorce. What nonsense. But this is the thinking. This is the idea. And friends, if a church leadership desires to be biblical and take on its responsibility it will get involved. It will provide counsel, advice, guidance, and direction. It will pursue the one who is sinning with an aim to call them back to repentance and be restored. They will stand with the one who has been left to pick up the pieces. Now, please hear this. I have this in yellow highlight because I want you to hear my heart. It is my goal, our church leadership's goal, that if divorce is the path that you walk down, either by choice or because it is being forced on you that when it is all said and done, that you can look over your shoulder with a clear conscience knowing that you have been humble and submissive to the elders and have walked the path that God, by virtue of his word, wants you to walk. Sadly, as I have mentioned, there are too many people who have been neglected, who have been abandoned by the church because of the church's unwillingness to stand for God's truth or take responsibility as God's under-shepherds. Now, I know it's hard for someone to say, I think we're going to go through a divorce, or, or this is where we're at. We're having trouble in our marriage. We need help. And so you come alongside and we say, come. It's hard to have that discussion. It's hard to walk down that path. But when you walk with the elders of the church who are, who are ministering the word of God and you go through that divorce, you can look over your shoulder and you can say, God, I have done what you've asked me to do. I've submitted myself to a church leadership. They have affirmed me through the process. My conscience is clear. Wouldn't you rather that than a church say, ah, whatever you want to do, and you go on, and you really have no framework except for what you think and other people tell you? We are the church. We are to care for one another, and the leadership of the church is called to shepherd the flock. 
and to walk with him through difficult times. So there are irresponsible elders. But hear this, <laughs> there are also irresponsible church attendees. It is a scandal that the church just doesn't want to get involved, but it's just as scandalous that couples don't want the oversight of the church leadership to walk them through their sin. Some simply want to get out from under the yoke of marriage and be free, and that is what they're going to do regardless of what the church leadership might say. Or California law says, I can get a divorce, therefore I'm going to get a divorce, and I don't want any church leadership telling me that I can't do that. And so rather than seeking help, seeking guidance, they pursue what they want regardless of what God says. Friends, that's a very dangerous place to be. I'm more concerned about that than I am about the divorce. I remember when I first came to California and was serving as pastor, a couple in the church were going through marriage difficulties. Then all of a sudden, he was gone. He was out of the home, and no one could find him. It was probably about a month later that I finally was able to contact him through a network to find out a new phone number this person had. And I finally caught him and lovingly talked to him and confronted him about what he had done and how he was abandoning his wife. And this is what he said. I'm, I'm writing this down. I want you to think through it. He says, Pastor, I want to thank you for seeking me out. I know what you are doing, and I respect it, but it isn't going to make any difference. I'm going to be pursuing a divorce. That is just what is going to happen. There's no reason for my wife and I to get together. There's no reason for us to meet for counseling. It's over. I know what the Bible teaches, and I know that you care about me, but please hear this. I don't want you to bother me about this. I've made up my mind. This divorce will take place. found out a year later when he took off, he took off with another lady. He was already in an adulterous relationship. Now friends, it boggles your mind that people who identify with Christ would be so brash to say, I don't care what the word of God says. I'm going to do what I want to do regardless. That's dangerous territory. Now, let me bring this to a close. We've seen just some, some things here. Very simply, God hates divorce, but he allows divorce under those two conditions. And he expects the church to be the church, to care for the flock, to interact and walk with them, no matter what the situation is. Now, please understand that the goal of our time in God's word this morning is not condemnation, but clarification that will bring about a clear conscience. The road to that clear conscience might need to travel through repentance, but joy in Christ is always the goal. Let me just say that again. The road to that clear conscience might need to travel through repentance, but joy in Christ is always the goal. The subject of divorce is often messy and complex. And many times it's helpful to walk through the details of your life with a third party, maybe an eldership or maybe someone who, who, who understands what Scripture says and can walk you through it to make sure that your conscience is clear. Our emotions can't rule us. The circumstances that we're facing shouldn't rule us. We must seek to, to put God first by humbling ourselves before his word. So I want to say this. What do you need to do in order to have a clear conscience before God? Now, I'm not, during this time, able to answer all the questions that you have, and that's the point. It is often so very, very complex. And, and you need to sit down and walk through a flowchart, so to speak, to figure out where do I fit in what God says and what he wants me to do that someone can help you do that because the goal at the end of the day is what? Having a clear conscience before God. Isn't that what we desire in all of the things that we struggle with? Of course. 
So you may be a victim of divorce and you are struggling with bitterness and loneliness and anger or fear. Let me remind you that Christ and his gospel will meet you with grace, comfort, and guidance. You may be the initiator of a sinful divorce. You may have been fighting off your conscience, trying to justify your actions, but let me remind you that Christ and his gospel will meet you. There is a way forward. There is forgiveness for for one who repents. There is restoration for the one who is humble before God. There is joy in finding rest in Christ. Wherever you may be coming at this from, So what do you need to do with Christ in order to live your life with a clear conscience before God and before man? I just want to say this publicly. I'm here to help you walk through this. Our elders are here to help you walk through this. And if our time this morning generates couples coming in, wanting to sort this out so that they can know where they stand before God, hallelujah, praise the Lord. I'd rather have that hard work and people wondering where they stand before God and feeling guilty and, and just having, having thoughts that are wrong. We want to help. And the gospel brings help. And the gospel brings counsel and it brings satisfaction and it brings rest. Would you not join me in a prayer? Lord, we we are a sinful people. Even though we are your children, and at times our marriages go through times of turmoil and difficulty, and sometimes in the midst of all that, there is this talk of divorce, and maybe there is a, a sexual encounter that took place, or Maybe there is an unbelieving spouse that just wants out. Maybe there is just a, a horrible kind of dynamic taking place at home that only the couple is aware of. Lord, we, we want you to be Lord of all of that. And Lord, we want those that are here today to recognize that you speak into their situation. Your gospel ministers counsel and grace and forgiveness and direction for people who are in extremely difficult relationships. Lord, would you allow our church to be a place that comforts and nurtures, but is not afraid to speak the truth? But in speaking the truth, that walking through that road and, and encountering the need for repentance and, and walking through that path that, that we can find joy. Help us, Lord, not to avoid the hard things in order to get to that reconciliation. But Lord, help us to hold them up by saying, this is the path we must walk. But let me tell you about the joy of Jesus Christ who, who brings total reconciliation and forgiveness when we are obedient to him. May that be our tone. May that be our joy. May that be our heart and our ministry. And I just pray for those that I know who are here today, who, are, who have been through divorces, who have been the victims of, of divorce, or who have contributed themselves. Lord, we need your help. There are people who are hurting. There are people who are struggling. Would you allow us to be a people who rest in you and on your word and in your gospel allow you to speak into our lives a freshness, a renewed vision, a renewed passion for what you want us to be from this moment on. Would you give us wisdom, Lord, how to help people in that process? We